Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on our Facebook page, the Montpelier Happy Hour, Emily's YouTube channel, and the MontpelierHappyHour.Captivate.FM. So if you want the happy hour, it can be the happy hour every day, all the time. (laughs) But just the same episode over and over again for a week. Well, you know, there's always that. Unless there you are go years. to our back episodes and subscribe to We have to years us of back episodes. Yeah, which you can find on our website or iTunes or mm-hmm. Spotify. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you could just have a playlist. The so good. Playlist. The things you could learn. So many things you could learn mm-hmm. from that playlist. For instance, a couple years ago, we had Representative Noise on the show to talk yes. about the Office of the Child Advocate. And is that finally coming to fruition? And, you know, he had introduced the bill, I think, three different biennium. Last biennium, we had him on to talk about it. I helped with a conference that an advocacy organization put on specifically on this bill. It um, For folks who do not go deep into the back episodes or have not been following us from the beginning, the Office of the Child Advocate essentially sets up an office within state government, but outside of the Agency of Human Services to be um, an ombuds or a watchdog or a sort of advocate for um, folks who are involved in the child protection system, either in the judiciary side or on the administrative side with DCF. Um, And that could be folks who are in residential care with... um, something that is managed by the state of Vermont or residential care that is outside of the state of Vermont that's contracted or folks who are in foster care. It could be families. And it's also for people who work in the child protection system and are feeling like they need a hand outside of their regular um, line of command. Mm -hmm. And so um, of all of the bills that um, float around, this is the one that I've felt for a long time would have the most direct, resonant, meaningful impact on the lives of folks in Wyndham County. And it passed unanimously on the House floor yesterday. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Oh, I'm going to get, I got teary about it on the floor and like there wasn't even any debate. And so I was like, I have all of these feelings that I have nowhere to put them. And I was, yeah, it was, I'm very happy about it. Well, yeah, you've talked often about how badly needed this position was as as a buffer and as someone who could give voice to people who may not always have voice in the process. Absolutely. It really is such, you know, when you're involved in the child protection system, um, on any side of it, just control and power is so incredibly complex because you're talking about people's relationship with their children and you're talking about vulnerable children. And so that brings out like the very core of people's feelings and behaviors, um, the best and the worst. And it's just folks need another hand to hold um, who they can trust because they know won't be making the decisions. Um, the immediate decisions about their kids' lives or um, about their jobs. And so, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I really, you know, I think there should be an ombuds office for every P 
piece of state governments. Yeah. And yeah. there historically there have been quite a few more than there are now, but of any, this one seems the most important. Mm-hmm. So I'm so excited. And when will it go into effect or when will they start building it? Um, so it needs to still pass the Senate. Okay. Um, it got an exemption from the crossover deadline, mm-hmm. which is means that um, the Senate has agreed that they'll still pick it up, but there's only really a few weeks left in the session. Uh-huh. Um, and so I'm hopeful that it will pass this session, but it's possible it won't. And then from then, there is an appropriation for it in this year's budget. Um, so it would start next year, but hiring needs to happen and the folks mm-hmm. need to get their office going and that kind of thing. So um, in a best case scenario, January. Okay. That's, a, and things very rarely follow a best case scenario. <laughs> so true, especially when we still have this thing called the pandemic going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, still, congratulations to you, Emily, and everyone who has put in a lot of work. Yeah, and I just want to call out, call in, celebrate. Um, The Root Social Justice Center have, for quite a number of years, had a really cool um, peer-to-peer advocacy slash support group Mm -hmm. for um, families of kids who have been in state's custody. And I absolutely don't remember the name of that group, um, but they've been operating for a while and they provided some really compelling testimony. Mm -hmm. As well as I know a lot of DCF workers um, who provided testimony both on the record and off the record um, to members of the committee about how much they saw the need for this office. Okay. Yes, thank you to all of them as well. Yeah. Well, great news to start up what will probably be quite the conversation. Um, We are talking today about a bill called S-53, which for those of you who have been watching the happy hour, you probably know that one of the things Emily and I like to do is dig into the process and the systems and the stories and the assumptions that create all the bills and legislation that we deal with every day, um, day in, day out. And I'm feeling in many ways that S53 is a great example of this. It does have a good story. It does have a good story. It has started (laughs) out, if you read the original as introduced legislation uh, on the, the state website, S, uh, F, sorry, S53, it's a page and a half long. And it basically says exempt feminine hygiene products from the sales tax. Take take the 6% sales tax off of pads and menstrual cups and anything related to the human menstrual cycle. It's probably one of the most simple pieces of legislation I've ever read. And then it went to the house. To my committee. To your committee. Yes. And when you read the um, legislation as it stands now, of course, it's still going through the process. It is now about um, feminine hygiene products are nowhere to be found. And it's no, they're about, still there. They are? They're still there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're not mm-hmm. obvious. <laughs> what is obvious is the uh, restructuring of corporate sales tax or corporate taxes in general, adding a sales tax on cloud-based software and exempting military pensions 
Um, and according to the JFO, doing some of these things in fiscal year 2022 could raise as much as 2.6 million mm-hmm. um, in revenue. And um, there was a quote in Digger from Becca Ballant, who seems uh, not to be very happy about this. Oh, she was just playing games with me via a journalist. And oh, um, I think some people took it a little more, some people other than me took it a little more personally than perhaps they should have. Well, I love this quote. I, yeah, I, it's really good. She's, she described it as a tax Christmas tree adorned with many baubles, which... Yes. She actually said gaudy baubles, and oh. I wrote to her and said, I do not do anything. They might be baubles, and they might be shiny, but they are not gaudy <laughs> baubles. Excuse me. <laughs> yes, especially yes. given you're, you are styling today, so we, we have you. to keep gaudy out of the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, these are shiny baubles right here on my ears, but they are not gaudy. No, they aren't. Anyway. So, um, and, and Scott, of course, is in favor of... Um, exempting the military pensions he's gone on so in favor of that yes so in favor on that he loves that one Mm -hmm. um and and it's just so interesting to me because here's something that started out um feminine hygiene products Mm -hmm. i have to you know as someone who has paid much in taxes for them over the years i was like yay Mm -hmm. um and now we are talking about very different things so i'm i'm curious emily like how did we get from here to there Well, um, first, I just, this is like a little piece of um, legislative housekeeping that I feel like I need to do for the um, forces of equity. So they're called feminine hygiene products in the legislation on both sides, both Mm -hmm. as it passed the Senate and then as it passed the House, because Vermont is a member of the Streamlined Sales Tax Agreement, which is an agreement with, I don't know, maybe a third of the states. I should really have that in front of me, but I don't. With a large number of states to structure our sales tax language the same way um, in order to just ease everyone's experience of it. Mm -hmm. And the language in the streamlined sales tax agreement says feminine hygiene. And so anything we do regarding sales tax needs to match up with the streamlined sales tax language. Um, when I reported on the bill and when I've written about the bill, I've done my very best to refer to menstrual products mm-hmm. um, because I think it's important for us to remember that not all women menstruate and not only women menstruate. Um, and the word feminine hygiene also feels like weird and creepy in 1950s-ish. Yeah, so, I hear you. Yeah. Um, and so just want to sort of name that. That's why we're using this weird archaic language. And um, we actually don't right now of a point person to the Streamlined Sales Tax Association because the person um, who was on it for many years did not run again this biennium. And so we're trying to move a new person onto that. And I'm hoping one of the first things that they tackle is helping the Streamlined Sales Tax Association update its language. language. So, but that's not the story we are here to tell, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So, um, I'm going to do a little bit of like legislative politics 101, and then we can talk about the content of the bill. Is that okay? That sounds perfect. Yep. So we've talked a lot about crossover and before crossover and after crossover, but quick refresher, there is an imaginary line in the middle of the biennium, which is usually the week after town meeting break, which is about halfway through the approximate length of the biennium, of the session, excuse me. 
And that imaginary line that is drawn called crossover is an agreement between the House and the Senate, the Senate and the House, that any bill that is voted out of one body before the crossover deadline will be picked up by the other body. It doesn't mean that they'll pass it, but it means that at least it will get time in the committee. Mm-hmm. So that means that if a committee wants to do any work after the crossover deadline on something, then they need to do the work and then wait for the next session or paste it into another bill that's floating around. Ah. <laughs> now, this pasting into another bill that's floating around is generally referred to as a Christmas tree. And mm-hmm. every committee does it near the end of the biennium because there's a whole bunch of reasons. One, everyone enjoys a little bit of trickery. Two, that's the funnest part of the story, but it's not actually the primary reason. Two, little known fact, in addition to the fact, little known fact outside of the legislature, the House members are in the same committee all day long, morning and afternoon. Senators are in two different committees. They spend their morning in one committee and their afternoon in another committee. And remember, there's all the stuff you have to do on the House or Senate floor in the middle of there. Mm -hmm. In addition to the fact that they spend half the amount of time in committee that House members do, they also, each Senate committee is essentially its matching buddy best friend committee in the other body. There's usually, a Senate committee usually has two matching buddy committees for each single Senate committee. So for instance, the Senate Committee on Finance is essentially made out of the House Energy and Technology Committee's legislation and the House Ways and Means Committee's legislation. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Or the Senate Committee on Economic Development is made up of the Housing General and Military Affairs Committee in the House and the Commerce Committee in the House. And there's a few like random things that sort of break that rule a little bit, but that's essentially how it operates. So that means that, and other very important point, if when bills meet crossover and they go over to the other body and the other body makes some changes to it because that's what people do when they have something in front of them, especially when they're elected to make changes to things. And then it goes back again and the other side is like, "Mm, I don't know about these changes. I have more changes. And then, so after that third round, isn't this the funnest morning story? Yeah. And then after the third round, if everyone's like, "Mm, no, this like passing a piece of paper back and forth isn't working for us. We need to sit down and talk to each other about it. Then a committee of conference is appointed. Right. Yeah. The thing is, given that the senators are on two committees and that each Senate committee does double the jurisdiction of each House committee, and each Senate committee is smaller than each House committee by a lot, about mm-hmm. half the number of members. Mm-hmm. If you just, can't, sorry, just to remind people, how many people in the Senate? How many people in the House? Oh, don't make! I never remember that number, and it's really embarrassing every time. And I wish you hadn't asked me. Sorry, I think it's about one forty in the House. It's yeah, it's one fifty in the House, and then one. I, I can never remember the Senate number. It's very low, though. Yeah, it's almost there's half not very of many of them. The house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Oh, I feel so busted. It's like something oh. I should know, like the back of my hand, and I just don't. You're going through very 
deep um, legislative uh, processes. We'll forgive you about okay. not knowing Thank the you. exact number of the body. Um, so then, so what that means is that we can't have committees of conference for every area of disagreement. If we did, for every individual bill's area of disagreement, because the senators don't have time for our bodies for all of those committees of conference. Mm -hmm. And committees of conference, the meetings actually have to be scheduled amidst all of these other meetings that we have. It's not like there's committee of conference week. Mm -hmm. That would actually be a very- That actually week. would be- But smart. there is not, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so if one wants to find agreement or get anything done, as the session goes on, I wish all the radio listeners could see the amazing hand gestures I'm using this morning. If this is air traffic control stuff. Yeah, I'm doing some really good stuff here. <laughs> going deep New York too with my hands. So if, or for Vermonters, I'm going deep Bernie Sanders with my hands. <laughs> so if, <laughs> if the house wants to get the Senate to be able to pay the attention that is required to the bills, we as House members need to narrow their field of vision as much as we possibly can. <laughs> okay. And so we do that by assembling what is often referred to as a Christmas tree. And so what that means is three bills that have all been sort of in the works get narrowed into one bill. Because say there's like three bills, you know, you have eight bills that you're working on, but three bills are really in motion, meaning they're popping back and forth. You want to even narrow it down to two bills that are in motion. So that you only have two committees of conference or um, whatever. So that's an important piece of the puzzle. The other piece that is interesting is that the power on the committee of conference is um, set by the body that did not originate the bill. Mm. The chair of the committee of conference is the body that did not originate the bill. So if it originated in the Senate, the chair on the committee of conference would be from the House. Yes. There we go. It's a nice balancing. Mm -hmm. What is interesting to me on Ways and Means is that our committee in the Senate, the Senate Committee on Finance, has apparently not sent us a bill in a decade. Huh. <laughs> That's odd. Until this bill, this very, very simple bill on menstrual products. Hmm. And so, so the house went nuts with it. We didn't go nuts. We happily. <laughs> and I think there's actually a lot of interestingness around the menstrual products conversation and language, mm -hmm. but um, around like, is it actually an issue of justice or not? Or are there greater issues of justice? And then onwards from there. But, and we can talk about that if you want. Um, but what we did was we attached a bill that we've been working on for a really, really, really long time and is actually incredibly impactful for Vermonters and the Vermont economy. And is really about like making corporations pay their fair share and centering Vermonters lives. And we put that in the bill so that it would have a chance of being paid attention to. 
And then there's some other stuff that's put around the edges that is absolutely Christmas ornaments, the military pay, the cloud tax, and those are intended A, to raise revenue to cover some other things, and B, to help bring everyone along for the journey, because there's something for everyone in this bill. Unlike Christmas trees, we're like, I don't know, usually, I don't, I shouldn't really be talking about actual, I don't really know very much about actual Christmas trees, going back to the New York tree thing, but <laughs> I do think generally a pretty Christmas tree follows a similar theme rather than having something for everyone on it, but maybe like family Christmas trees have something for everyone, I don't know, I guess it depends on your family. So that is, um, that is the logistical side of the story of how we came to this piece of legislation. And happy to talk about each section of it whenever you're ready. Thank for you. That. Yeah, I think we'll do that in the the second half because there's yeah. we're getting near to needing to take a break. Well, thank you for that, Emily. And you know what I I found so interesting reading through the bill this morning, and then kind of comparing some of the press releases that have been released by different players in the in the game as well as some of the news coverage. What I found so interesting is that you're right, there is something in this bill for everybody. Um, and the restructuring of, of corporate sales taxes is huge. And that's an issue I think you and I have kind of circled around a little bit in other conversations. But I just, tiny clarification, it's corporate income tax, not corporate sorry, sales tax. Sorry, I'm thinking sales okay. tax. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah. I'm just appreciate that. I know that you know. I'm just clarifying for the other people. Who yeah, we don't want to confuse what. people more than they no. have to be. Um, no. But what I find so interesting in the conversation that seems to be coming out of this is that even though there's something in here that could be for everyone, the conversation is a little bit either or. Yeah. And I'm finding that <laughs> I wish I had something brilliant to say about it. It's it's just that. Huh, we do this so often. And I don't know if it's we're not good at communicating how there's something for everyone, or if we're just so used to pitting needs against each other. Like it the conversation has kind of been just to boil this down to being very simplistic. It's like, look, either soldiers get um a, a break on their military pensions or women get a break on menstrual products. Like that's kind of how it's, it's coming out, mm -hmm. even though it may not actually be that in practice. Um, so are you hearing that? Is that kind of. So I, you know, there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are pieces of this bill that I like a lot more than other pieces of this bill. Mm -hmm. And that's true of almost any bill that will make it out of a committee. Um, because the committees are arranged to reflect the full legislative body with on some level the assumption that is if it can make it out of committee, the body, meaning the full house or the full Senate, will probably come along because right. there's sort of like a micro macro thing happen. Um, I there were so many amendments on this bill and so many divisions and I can explain divisions in a second. Um, but and I am grouchy lately. 
I know I'm not the only one who's grouchy lately. And so I feel like it's okay to just say to the whole world right now, I'm really grouchy lately. I mm-hmm. Spring is not bringing me the burst of joy I thought it would. I haven't gotten my vaccine yet. I don't even know if I'll feel joyful after that. I, things are hard. People are dying. I'm Numbers grouchy. are going up. It's not pretty. Yes. Yeah. No. And like the police won't stop killing people. It's just like, there's a lot going on and I'm feeling grouchy. And Zooming all day is not like the most heart-tending activity. My life is very good. I don't actually, you know, anyway. So I'm grouchy lately. Maybe it's just my grouchiness. But I I just really like when all of this was happening and there were all these amendments and all of these divisions, I just couldn't help but saying like, can't you be happy with this part here for you? There's a part here for you. Look at that. You know, it's, um, I read a lot of cooking blogs and um, a lot of like sort of the cooking blogs are about like weeknight dinners or whatever and cooking for kids if you're a person who actually cares about food is about like making sure the meal is divisible and so that someone can take, you know, like you have dinner but you don't mix the cucumbers in, you have the cucumbers on the side so the person who likes the cucumbers can eat the cucumbers and the person who doesn't like the cucumbers doesn't eat the cucumbers but everyone eats the same dinner. Mm-hmm. And that with this bill, I was a little bit like, really, you can't be, you can't be happy with that piece right there. I'm happy with that piece right there. That's why I'm reporting this bill on the floor and representing my committee with it. So um, I don't get it. I don't know how much of it's um, people really feeling like the compromise isn't worth it to them, which totally valid. Or if people are saying, I see, a, I see an opportunity, someone said yes. So maybe they'll say yes to more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really not, or if just everyone else is grouchy and like wanting to grandstand about everything at every opportunity because they're also having the feelings. I don't know. But yes, I had that. Hmm. Yes. Fascinating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, um, we're just about needing to go to break, but I, I guess, um, for you, I'm, I'm curious, how much are you feeling that that this is just about, you know, this bill right now just represents here and now? And how much are you representing or how much are you feeling that it it's followed the process that just about every bill has followed and it's not that exciting? Um. I think it's interesting how much attention it got. I think it's interesting that the attention it got wasn't um, repealing a sales tax on cloud products. I mean, repealing an exemption on cloud products and and adding an exemption to menstrual products is, you know, it'll impact the margins of people's lives. I don't think very many people know how much they pay in sales tax overall each year, let alone on single products in their lives. Um, And the military pension issue, I understand, is um, certainly an issue of significant emotional weight to people, Um, you know, children and veterans. And, you know, we've talked about things that are um, very sticky emotionally to people. But the, like, deeply impactful for the revenues of the state and for the economy of the state is this corporate piece in the middle Mm -hmm. that no one's paying any attention to 
And I was in, like, I think the journalists who called me about the article were fairly annoyed with me because I was giving them little lectures about like, I know this one's sparkly, but like, can I please explain to you this incredibly important thing we just did? Because um, I think that's the more interesting conversation. Um, so to answer your question, this is how most legislation happens near the end of the session. Every committee has a bill that's like this Christmas tree. And this one, because it had so many um, aspects of the Christmas tree that people had um, resonance around, I think it was a more noticeable Christmas tree. Maybe because the ornaments were shinier and perhaps gaudier baubles, um, <laughs> it attracted more attention. But it is really in the end, just like a fairly normal legislative happening. Okay. Well, Emily, thank you for, for that roundup. We are going to hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, but stay tuned. We second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with my regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three representatives to the town of Brattleboro, and we are talking about S53, which is essentially a tax bill, uh, but it's, it's a Christmas tree, pretty shiny Christmas tree tax bill as we've been, we've been talking about. So um, in the second half, we want to work through the different parts of this bill. So how about, Emily, if you start with where the bill started, which was removing the 6% sales tax from menstrual products? Yeah. Um, so that's what the bill does. It's become a real, um, real like feminist flashpoint. Um, and has gotten really up, to, really wrapped up in conversations around um, product scarcity and um, menstrual product scarcity, mm -hmm. and which is a huge issue. Um, folks who um, aren't housed often don't have access to period products. Um, kids living in poverty, you know, young women living in poverty mm -hmm. often don't have access to period products. There's a real problem with that. And period products are not allowed to be paid for with food stamps. Um, they're not part of sort of WIC. It's not, there's no system for getting those products to folks who really need them, um, who are struggling financially. And they are quite expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it always amazes me a little bit that there isn't a system because let's face it, folks, it's going to happen every month. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like this should be a surprise for anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, there are diaper banks, um, which is sort of a similar, you know, commercial product that's not covered by food stamps that um, a lot of folks need to access regularly. But there aren't tampon banks at schools. They're often in the nurse's office rather than freely available. Um, and so, I think there's a lot of really important things around those product scarcity. I'm sort of, you know, working with legislative council to see if we can um, figure out a way to get them paid for with food stamps. Um, we can't do that federally, but we might be able to put money into the food stamp fund from state dollars. Um, in jails, period products are often used as a um, 
tool of control by um, guards. And so there are a lot of, there's a lot of benefits of making them freely available in any congregate setting, schools, jails, mental hospitals, et cetera. Um, and a lot to be said for how we can make them more available for poor people. None of that is accomplished by removing the sales tax. This is true. And in fact, the cost to the state of removing the sales tax, that money, if it was spent on period poverty, which is how people sort of talk about this larger issue, would pretty much solve it. Um, but that is not what we did. <laughs> we did away with the sales tax because it feels like this like core injustice. And for me, it gets back to this idea of um, people thinking that taxes are a core injustice. Um, and I don't think they are. Mm -hmm. I think they are a product of our lives. Um, and they are how we pay for civilization. And they are what we do um, that whenever we exchange money, um, some of that money goes to the state to pay for things that we collectively decide are important to us. Right. And I understand that given how low our wages are and how much we don't feel in control of our own financial destinies, that taxes often feel like the reason we're not in control of our financial destinies or um, more punishment mm -hmm. on top of the horrors of capitalism. Um, but that's not personally how I view taxes and it's not how I wanna structure our tax um, system. Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, while we were on break, although you mentioned the pink tax, um, which is that things that are marketed for women are often more expensive than the exact same product marketed for men, which is very different from the period tax, which is a product that only people who menstruate buy. Um, and the reason it's not considered a medical product is because it doesn't, um, the definition of medical product is about something that's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And so it can't be considered a medical product, which I think is sort of fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, in like the deep margins of tax policy, that's fascinating. So I would love to also work on something um, and maybe I can find someone on the Commerce Committee who wants to do that with me to really look at how we price things. Um, you know, across genders mm -hmm. and really approach that. Um, or to look at how um, breast pumps are covered by health insurance. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, there's a whole bunch of really intense gender justice issues around money mm -hmm. that we need to take on. And I don't, sometimes I worry that when we have easy wins, like um, this menstrual product thing, that we'll stop there and feel like we succeeded. Mm -hmm. um, and I know maybe that's a little too scarcity minded of me, but a lot of energy went into this period products thing and the celebrating the period products thing. And I just, I would love to have that same energy go into something that would be much more impactful for people's lives. So mm -hmm. that's I think, the beyond period products. Yeah, I, I think one thing that ties on a kind of emotional conceptual level that ties this tax to some of the other bigger issues you talks you talked about is you know when we when we tax or don't tax products mm -hmm. quite often there's this concept that well if it's a necessity to someone's life like food clothing you don't tax it and so mm -hmm. i think for a lot of women you know having that tax on menstrual products being told well you're ta we're taxing this because it's not a necessity it's like 
seriously. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, it is definitely, you are, you're right. There are other ways of addressing gender financial issues, um, that are much more important and would be a, have a much bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just throwing that out there too, cause I think it does tie into why some of these gender inequality financial things are even existing is because of how we're thinking about what people need. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, it's interesting. I think the reason behind the idea that our food and our, um, our groceries and our clothing aren't taxed isn't about the fact that they're essential products and that's why they're not taxed because mm-hmm. it's different in every state. Mm-hmm. I think in Vermont, the reason we don't tax those things is because um, it's a flatter tax. And so folks at lower incomes are spending a greater proportion of their income on those things. And so would be disproportionately taxed on that. And, you know, I think it makes sense to throw menstrual products into that category as well. Um, But I think it's, it's not that we don't tax necessities. It's that in order to have an overall progressive tax system, we don't want to emphasize taxes that are, um, as flat as that one. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I, again, I mean, the show is about the stories behind mm, the stories indeed. we tell about our society. So yes, yes. Yep. Yeah. That's what we are digging into. Mm-hmm. So also, sorry, last thing. Oh, no, I was very looking forward to just like my, you know, sprightly Brattleboro feminist self was super looking forward to like answering a lot of questions on the house floor about menstrual products. And I was looking forward to talking about them on the house floor and like hoping someone would explain to me what a cup was. And I was just like, so psyched on it. And I didn't get a single question. That was very oh. disappointing. Do you want me to ask you what a menstrual cup is? So that no, can... I don't. I'm just, you know, I was just hoping, I, I was just hoping to talk about the period blood on the house floor and no one, I didn't get a chance. So just wanted to Oh, so sad. Mm-hmm, it is. So um, what what did take up the mo- most of the conversations about S53? <sighs> um, so one thing that took up a lot of the conversation was the so-called cloud tax. Mm-hmm. And the history behind the cloud tax is that um, in Vermont's existing sales tax structure, products downloaded from the cloud should have always been subject to tax. And about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, um, when this was happening a lot more, when we like got download speeds that a person would ever download something, people, um, the tax department and some folks working in this industry felt like the boundaries were really confusing and this was really nascent and um, advocated for and got an exemption to the sales tax basically on the assumption that this was like an emerging industry and people didn't quite understand how it was going to work yet. So we should let it figure itself out a little bit. We have figured it out, right? Like I think most people now use the internet. Mm -hmm. Most people download things from the internet. If they have the internet speed. If they have the internet, we're doing a lot of really good work to bring the internet to all the people's Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the future of how people buy things. Yeah. And so our tax structure needs to follow the future, not the past and not even the present. 
So we are repealing an exemption to the sales tax. We are not creating a magical new tax on IT products. We are just repealing an exemption to the sales tax. And I really, I don't feel like that's a semantic issue. I feel like that's a really important piece of the conversation um, from like a corporate justice issue, like perspective or something. Because I'm getting a lot of, um, I think there's been a lot of conversation about how dare we tax this essential emerging industry. Um, but it's not, like I said, it's not a brand new tax. It's just the same tax that customers pay on all of the other products that are made more in the real life. So that's what we did. There was a lot of debate about it. Um, one thing that's sort of an issue of confusion for some folks um, is that in the debates about the CLAD tax after the over the last maybe four years, um, there's this idea around um, software as service, infrastructure as service, and platform as service, um, which you can say SaaS and PaaS, but you can't really say IaaS. And so you just have to, because <laughs> there's little acronyms written out, but it doesn't work to read them. And I hope I didn't violate the radio rules with that one. You were talking about something very specific. You were talking about an acronym. I think Great. You're, I think you're fine. Thank you. Thank They're probably you. going to be more upset that we said the word menstruate. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, FTC, you're so silly. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, um, the idea of sort of software service is it's like the thing that you would have bought in a box before, but now you don't buy in a box because you don't have a disk drive. You download it like um, Microsoft Office or QuickBooks or I don't know if anyone even listening even remembers what software looked like in a box, but that's the deal. Um, and then other things are sort of have never been down, like they've never been in a box. They are just in the internet ether. And um, as we talked about this and talked about just taxing software as a service, the industry kept on coming in and saying, it's, we, you can't tax this because we can't figure out what the boundary is between platform as a service and infrastructure as a service or software as a service. Um, and so we said, okay, if the boundaries are so fuzzy between these three things, we'll just tax, we'll just apply the sales tax, all of it and call it a day. Yep. Done. So that's what we did. And um, that was fun for me because one of the ways that people, lobbyists kill bills is they come into committee and they just create confusion. That's like the best way to kill a bill. You just come into committee and you go, this is so much more complex than you could ever understand. Look at this shiny bobble and this shiny bobble and this shiny bobble. You mean they come in and they put a Christmas tree in the middle of the table? They do. And then they set it on fire. <laughs> and the ornaments go flying all over the room and everyone goes to look at a different ornament that's flown all over the room and the committee loses its focus and the thing doesn't happen. And so- That's clever. I was really psyched to say, okay, it's confusing. Let's tax more of it. Um, <laughs> and so that was fun. And I actually think it's good policy because it is confusing. It is in fact a spectrum and not um, distinct buckets. And sort of last detail that I find interesting. Um, generally, when you move along the spectrum from software as a service to infrastructure as a service, the, it's more common for states, um, and about half of states tax some form of this. Mm. Um, 
it's more common for states to tax the software as a service than the infrastructure as a service. Mm -hmm. But as you move along the spectrum from one to the other, infrastructure as a service is owned by like two corporations worldwide, basically. Mm -hmm. And software as a service is a much more um, diverse industry. Mm -hmm. And so I'd rather have some of the burden sit further along the spectrum myself. And so that's a nice balancing that happened um, policy-wise in addition to just the glee around the Christmas tree. So <laughs> that's that piece. Okay. We have just about 10 minutes left. So I'd love to... Um touch quickly on military um, pensions, but I want to make sure we have a chance to talk about the corporate in income tax as well. Yeah. So, so, you know, one thing I'll just, I'll just step in there and say, you yeah. know, one thing Scott's pushing with this military pension, um, not taxing them is it's a way to build population that mm. we can attract more people yeah. to, to the state. I, I spoke with John Hagen who is a retired veteran himself. And I said, does this ring true for you? And he says, well, you know, folks who are in the National Guard are probably already in Vermont because this is their home. And so this is where they serve from. So it doesn't really mean too much for them. He said, those who are retiring, who have served elsewhere, um, yes, they can shop around and since many retire in their 30s or 40s they can have a whole other civilian career um so that was you know one veteran's mm -hmm. response to the to the issue i would love to hear yours well um i'm going to talk about the evidence in a second but one piece of this puzzle which i found um interesting is when we were we have a lot of veterans um who are serving the house um, and, and I think it's important to, um, differentiate that the military pensions that we're talking about here, um, are only for folks who completed a full career of service within the military. It's not folks who served some tours. Um, it's not all veterans, it's military retirees. Okay. Um, which is a much narrower group of people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like most like Vietnam vets are not military retirees, they're veterans, just right. like as a very practical example. So we have all of these folks in the house who are either vets and sometimes also military retirees. And they kept on talking about how no one would want to retire here without this exemption. And I'm like, you are serving in the legislature and you live here. So what are you talking about? Like they were just living examples of their own, the opposite of their own arguments. Um, but in terms of the data, there is no evidence at all that um, this particular tax exemption helps support um, movement into the state. The two, two states that also don't tax um, that also tax, sorry, that also tax military retirement um, is California and Virginia, hmm. which if I close my eyes and think about states with a lot of retired military, those are two states that I think of almost immediately. And I know nothing about this stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they have huge numbers of military retirees into the, those two places because they have bases there. Right. And people tend to retire where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, or they return to their home, which is... Or they return to their home community. Yeah. Or like people make a lot of decisions about where they're going to live. And when we, you know, we talked some time ago about the $10,000 recruitment nonsense that the Agency of Commerce has been pushing. Um, and it just doesn't, that's not how people make life decisions. Yeah. Um, New York, which is, you know, right there on the other side of the border, does have an exemption from taxing this pension and um, has many fewer retirees per capita than we do. So there's like really no quantitative evidence about this at all. I understand that it feels like an issue of respect and that maybe an individual person who people might have individually met at some point might feel like that's not a state who respects me and my service. And so I don't want to live there. That doesn't bear out in the numbers, though I'm sure it bears out in the hearts of genuine humans who are genuinely making decisions. I don't want to discount that. So there's that. Um, The other piece of this that I think is really important is that Vermont works really, really, really hard to have a progressive income tax um, system and exempting one category of pensions, um, especially given that military retirees tend to um, be a little bit above um, median income is not progressive. Mm -hmm. Um, Both the pulling someone out for exemption by class rather than by income level and the actual particular class of this is not necessary. By sticking to just the $10,000 that we passed here, um, it's slightly more progressive, but there's still some discomfort. And I think politically in the midst of these really dynamic, difficult, um, painful conversations that we're having about pensions for state employees and teachers, the idea of pushing this wider than the $10,000 is just, Mm. unconscionable to me I'm sorry I just Mm -hmm. because again we're like prioritizing one class of people over another fair point yeah um I know there's so much more we could talk about here (laughs) but we do have just five minutes and I know you have to get to another meeting so um corporate income tax just can you give us some some highlights about why you feel this was an important part to add to the bill. Yeah. So corporate income tax, there's like a little cardinal couple flirting with each other outside my window. Somebody's having a happy spring. Yeah, someone's having a happy spring. Um, So corporations, and I'm not talking about businesses. I'm using corporation as a very specific technical term here. We're not talking about pass-through corporations. We're talking about actual corporations um, tend to have multiple divisions within them, um, sometimes even subsidiaries. And those subsidiaries and divisions operate in different jurisdictions, in different states, in different countries. And one of the ways that corporations avoid taxes corporate income taxes is by moving profits and revenues from one subsidiary to another. Mm-hmm. So, but what we are actually allowed to do under state taxes is say anything that happens within the corporation is considered within the whole corporation. And so a bunch of sections of the corporate reforms are about 
basically this idea of creating a unitary filing group. And there's what we do about that with out of, you know, with um, international profits. And there's what we do with it with um, profits that happen outside the state or revenues that happen outside the state. Mm -hmm. So we're bringing them all into one big lump and saying, um, it all counts as your corporate profits or your corporate revenue. That's really important one part because it means that they can't shuffle off everything to right. all the pieces, right? Which is, we know, like, even those of us who really just like read about an article about this like once a year or so in the paper know that that's a thing no, that corporations do, right? Yeah. Another piece of it is how we understand what the share that a corporation pays should be due to Vermont mm. because these are corporations that are operating across multiple states and multiple countries. And there are a lot of different ways that states decide that, but usually it's a fraction of something that happens in the state. And so what we are applying in this case is saying fraction of the sales, that's how we decide how much presence you have in our state in terms of the taxes that are due. How much sales have you done in our state? Mm -hmm. And then what is that as a fraction of your total sales nationally? Okay. I think this is really important for a few reasons. One, sales are where profits are made. Mm -hmm. When someone has um, people in a state, meaning um, payroll in a state, there are, of course, labor is turned into profits, but labor is turned into profits via sales. It's mm -hmm. not, that's how labor is turned into profits. Right. Um, and payroll taxes are paid. When people have property in a state, that means that they're investing in the infrastructure of the state on some level, and they're paying property taxes on that. Um, and again, people and property is turned into profits. And so um, it's really easy to sort of do wild things with your property and with your payroll, right? Like we know about, you know, the contractors, the extent to which people are depending on contractors at this point as a way of avoiding both tax liability and, you know, human rights mm -hmm. is huge. And the national environment makes it really hard for us to crack down on that. Um, and similarly with property, people lease property rather than owning property. We don't want to incentivize people to lease rather than own. We don't want to incentivize corporations to contract rather than hire. And so by moving to just sales, we're like moving to sort of the end of the end of the stream where it's much harder to um, create trickery. And so that is like the sole way that we are going to measure someone's presence in the state for their corporate liability. So that's one huge chunk of the bill. The other piece that's really, really fun is the corporate minimum tax, because even within all of that maneuvering we just did, this is, I think, the best I've explained this thus far, and I've explained <laughs> it so many times. I'm impressed. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited. <laughs> the... Even within all of that, there's still corporations who do a brilliant job of avoiding tax liability. And so we're saying if you're operating the state, there's still a minimum tax you must pay. Because corporate income tax is derived on net income. 
risk, right? Like people can have all kinds of exemptions that bring down their tax liability. But corporate minimum taxes are based on gross receipts, mm. which is essentially sales. Right. Um, and so we're lining those two things up. And again, those are things that are much harder for, to do trickery with. And we're saying if you're operating in the state, there's a minimum tax you must pay. This was some put, in, um, put into place about a decade ago. The corporate minimum taxes were quite low. We had a very different corporate, international corporate landscape a decade ago. And we saw very different sales into Vermont from large corporations a decade ago because mm. we were not, um, we did not have the level of internet sales that we have now. Good point. So what we did was we lowered the lowest bracket because in fact, there are some corporations who have gross receipts below $100,000 a year. Hmm. Because sometimes people just organize things as a corporation because that makes sense to them. So for right. instance, um, I know of like a general store in central Vermont that's organized as a corporation. Mm -hmm. We don't need their corporate minimum tax to be that high. Right. Um, but what we found when we did a little more digging with the tax department, because they were just sort of the bulk of the number, the bulk of corporations have fairly low gross receipts because the bulk of anything is going to be sort of, you know, centers towards the middle. That's how a normal curve works. Mm. And we can, we don't get full information from the tax department. We get things in buckets in order to protect the privacy of filers. Mm -hmm. And so we asked the question, not like, what are the brackets that you would set up if you were setting up like fifths, but in fact, what is the bracket, the highest bracket that would include the top 10 filers, mm -hmm. top 10 gross receipts of the top 10 filers. And we found out that there were corporations operating in Vermont that have more than $250 million a year in gross receipts that were paying just a couple hundred dollars a year in taxes here. Huh. Interesting. And so once we combined all of those other things to say like, what makes someone have nexus and how do we count things? We're also add, able to add this much higher corporate minimum tax for these massive corporations that are selling to Vermont, but not necessarily doing much else to support our lives here mm -hmm. and um, bring that minimum tax up quite dramatically and is now in line with New York State. So wow. that was really fun. That feels like, you know, I don't, that you know, seems like an it accomplishment. Sounds, it sounds, um, at least in the realm of political posturing, that the Senate is not interested in picking this up this year, but it is an incredibly important way that we make sure that Vermont, that you know, corporations operating all across the world are paying their fair share for what they are doing in Vermont. And so I'm really excited about that piece of the bill. And I'm hopeful that even if the Senate does not have time for it this year, they will find time for it next year, because this is still the first year of the biennium. Yes. What I'll say quickly before you head out, what I find interesting about this uh, corporate income tax is, you know, one reason property taxes and education taxes feel high for a lot of people. And one of the things that we struggle with in this state is most of the tax burden often does fall on property, residential property taxes. Mm -hmm. By restructuring this corporate tax, what it has the potential to do is spread that burden out. Um, yeah. And it, it could actually relieve some pressure on other parts of the, the tax. Exactly. Code. And that's one thing you can see if you look at the fiscal note on this whole bill, that it um, a lot of the money from it is going to go 
um, into the Ed Fund, which is where property taxes also sit. On that note, Olga, I would like to make a toast to your birthday, your second pandemic birthday. Happy birthday. I am so glad to be doing this show with the best host. Thank you. Thank you. Happy, happy hour and happy birthday. Happy, happy to everyone. Have a great weekend. 